As the saying goes, there is no bull market like a gold bull market. And indeed, we are above $2,000, just piercing 2020. We are now at 2022. I feel like I am watching something happen in real time. And it even feels a touch historic. Am I exaggerating? Hello and welcome back to the Northern Miner Podcast. My name is Adrian Pocabelli. I'll tell you what I think when I see what's happening here. And when I look at all the news stories that we're going to look at here, and I see uranium up at $80, you know, $80.25, I'll tell you what I feel is I feel the animal spirits are starting to move on this long awaited commodities, particularly in the metals, but commodities bull market. It kind of feels around the corner. And again, not financial advice. No one knows. So for what that's worth, as we were describing a few weeks ago, gold is looking comfortable above $2,000. And interestingly, I mean, silver is still at $24.75 per ounce. So still reasonably low relative to gold. Copper is at $3.79. So I guess the question I ask myself is, is gold setting the table? Is gold, you know, ruthlessly grinding higher as it moves forward here? And is this a kind of prelude of things to come? So should that happen, I'm telling you, this is going to become an incredibly exciting story as I began this episode. There is no bull market like a gold market. And so we will continue to follow that and we'll continue to follow the battery metals. I mean, lithium, it is at $17.67 per kilogram. So lithium, almost a cascading waterfall here. We have a story on that. It is down 75% on the year with all of the excitement around lithium at the end of the day. 75% lower year to date. So that is also interesting. And you wonder, you know, what stories are commodities going to tell us? I mean, we look at oil as well, a key player in our commodity drama here. We have WTI, West Texas Intermediate at $75.67 and Brent crude at $80.75. So staying comfortably low and there's net gas below $3 at $2.71. And it just brings back when I was asked earlier this year by one of our guests pre-show, how do you feel about nat gas? And I say, well, it's a whole lot cheaper than it used to be. All the risk seems to be on the upside. Again, not financial advice. It just feels there is a little bit of excitement in what is happening here. And I feel like gold of all The main general of these metals is leading the charge. And so very interesting to watch here and all sorts of interesting news here going on in the wider world as the EU and the United States have hit a deadlock in negotiations on critical metals. China is starting to ramp up what they're calling curbs on graphite. Of course, we had John DeMaio last week in-depth on graphite. So as I say, the risk being in net gas on the upside, I would say the drama on this show, the risk is to the upside.
for sure with what might happen here in the following weeks and months. So on this episode, I'm very pleased to welcome back to the show Stephen Stewart, who is chair of Young Mining Professionals Scholarship Fund and also chair of the Org Group. And he fills us in on what is going on with Young Mining Professionals. They are just about to announce the winners of their scholarship fund. They are also taking nominations for the Peter Monk and Ira Thomas Awards, which are for people in the mining industry who are under 40, who are showing outstanding performance. You can nominate them at youngminingprofessionals.com. Stephen provides us with all the websites, should you want to do that, as well as if you are a student and you want to apply for YMP scholarships, I ask him all the details on how you should do that, how to track the news and everything. So a wonderful show here as we start to head into the Christmas season. I mean, other than that, I mean, it's quite interesting. We we're discussing the new president of Argentina last week, Javier Mille, and it was quite interesting, somewhat backpedaling, according to a story in Bloomberg, Soft peddling, we might say this anti-China rhetoric. It sounds like, you know, whoever is in the bureaucracy maybe explained to Javier that cutting diplomatic ties with China may not be in Argentina's best interest. And interestingly, it sounds like the dollarization of the economy that Millet wanted is also sounding like it is going to be shelved. So very interesting developments here. And it has only been a week. Of course, we had the major election in Holland with the win of Geert Wilders, who has been in the political wilderness for over two decades. For anybody that's paid attention to European politics, often said to be hard right. And so we have Geert Wilders winning the Dutch election. So that was a surprise, I'm sure, to the establishment in Brussels and across the continent. So. Big developments here, and it has to be noted, I mean, there was, you know, Javier Millet, often described by the media as a hard right, you know, libertarian candidate. And then here we have Geert Wilders, often described as a hard right candidate. You look at the polling here in Germany, the IFD, Alternative for Deutschland, it is second in the Politico EU polling. National Parliament voting intentions... And what you see is over the course of the year of 2023, AFD goes from 14 to 22%. So they are in second there to the CDU, Angela Merkel's old party, so which is at 30%. But the current government, you know, SPD Day, where Olaf Scholz is from, that's at 16%. The Greens are at 13%. And you really see them both go from 20% at the start of the year again, down to 16 and 13% with parliamentary voting intention. So tectonic political shifts are happening here on a weekly basis. You know, last week was Argentina. This week it is Holland. Meanwhile, commodities look primed, don't they? So lots to look forward to and some fascinating news stories as well. If you want to find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. You can find us on Twitter at Northern Miner and on Instagram at The Northern Miner and on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube, where we also host these podcasts. And wherever podcasts are available, including Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. And with that, let's turn to the news. 
And turning to the website, China allows a trickle of critical mineral exports ahead of graphite curbs. Bloomberg News via Mining.com. China exported small amounts of two minerals crucial to high-tech manufacturing in October, marking a resumption in sales after a two-month hiatus caused by Beijing's restrictions. Of course, this is following the meeting of Xi and Biden in San Francisco. One wonders... If there is a connection there, let's continue. The controls on germanium, gallium, and their chemical compounds used to make parts for chips, telecommunications equipment, and electric vehicles were imposed on August 1st on national security grounds as China escalated its tit-for-tat trade war with the U.S. and Europe. Another set of export controls on graphite, a key material for EV batteries, is due to come into force on December 1st. For germanium and gallium, Chinese exporters are now required to apply for licenses from the government and report details on their overseas customers and how the metals are used. After almost zero exports were recorded in August and September, tiny quantities were posted for October, according to the latest Chinese customs data. So that would have been pre-summit but it was maybe leading up to the summit. For germanium, exports were 0.65 tons, compared to 8.78 tons in July. For gallium, they were 0.25 tons versus 7.58 tons in July. So a fraction, not even 10%, we might say 5 to 7% of their previous exports in July. So not exactly opening the floodgates either. For the whole of 2022, China exported 44 tons of germanium and 94 tons of gallium. And again, they just exported 0.65 tons of germanium and 0.25 tons of gallium. 2022, 44 tons of germanium and 94 tons of gallium. So this is a trickle. China is the world's biggest importer of commodities because its consumption of energy, metals, and grains far outstrips its domestic output. But in one corner of raw materials markets, critical minerals used by the world's high-tech industries, it holds an outsized advantage in terms of production and processing capacity. And I would add, this is no accident. Scrolling down a bit, China's looming graphite curbs aren't as significant as they could have been, according to a note from Bloomberg NEF, because they, quote, target natural graphite products rather than the synthetic ones that account for the bulk of Chinese exports, end quote. Interesting. So here we are hearing that the curbs, the graphite curbs, are on natural graphite. Remember John DeMaio last week, and I highly recommend you listen to that episode if you haven't, because I asked, you know, the simple question that was unclear, which was EV batteries, is it synthetic or natural graphite that is used? And interestingly, he said both. It is a mix, which is an interesting answer and not what I was expecting. So interesting developments there, a little bit of a trickle. I don't know if it's anything to get too excited about. Frankly, it seems like it's still being blocked without them having to say that it's 100% blocked. Continuing on, EU and US delay key trade meeting amid deadlock in negotiations. So this is also Bloomberg News. A trade meeting between the US and European Union due to take place next month is expected to slip to early next year as the two allies remain deadlocked in talks about steel and critical minerals. So these are the points of contention. Again, mining, natural resources, metals at the heart of the disagreement here between the EU and the US. The Trade and Technology Council was meant to take place last month in parallel to the US-EU summit, but was postponed to mid-December. 
The TTC meeting is now likely to happen in early 2024, according to people familiar with the matter. The delay comes as negotiations to agree on global steel accords and a critical minerals deal have both stalled. Bloomberg previously reported that the U.S. wants to maintain the status quo on steel and aluminum trade for two more years, while the EU is looking for changes to the arrangement as it says it's unfair and cumbersome. The pursuit of a metals accord is aimed at settling a Trump-era dispute sparked by tariffs on European imports on the grounds they posed risk to American national security. Brussels scoffed at that justification and responded with retaliatory measures. The dispute resulted in tariffs on as much as $10 billion in transatlantic trade. The two sides reached a temporary truce in 2021, which expires at year-end, to provide time to negotiate a lasting agreement. Continuing on, Stellantis CATL planned to build EV battery plant in Europe. Bloomberg News via Mining.com, Stellantis NV and China's contemporary Amperex technology company, also known as Cattle, plans to set up a factory for low-cost electric vehicle batteries in Europe, deepening ties between the fiat maker and Chinese company. The plant will make lithium iron phosphate batteries, Stellantis said Tuesday, adding that no decision has been made on its size or location. The partners are also considering a joint venture in which both contribute equally. Lithium iron phosphate batteries have been gaining traction with automakers because they're cheaper and more stable than nickel-based cells used in most EVs. I mean, this is something that's been brought up repeatedly now by Simon Michaud and Robert Friedland, which is this idea that for these electric vehicle batteries, we should be looking for minerals that are in abundance, not necessarily in short supply. And here you see lithium iron phosphate being preferred over nickel-based cells. So this is interesting. While they have a lower energy density that results in shorter driving distances, their performance has been improving with technology advances. And we have a quote from Maxime Picot, Stellantis Executive Vice President and Global Head of Purchasing and Supply Chain, who told reporters, quote, Today we have zero capacity of production of LFP in Europe. For the next five to ten years, it will be a very important technology. And I assume referring to lithium iron phosphate batteries. And scrolling down a bit, this is quite interesting. China battery makers supply some 80% of cells globally, while Chinese firms also have significant mining and processing facilities at home and abroad. The country's stranglehold on the EV supply chain has become a source of geopolitical tension with the U.S. and Europe. This is also an interesting thread here. Investors with $11 trillion back plan to reform mining industry. Bloomberg News via Mining.com. Some of the world's biggest investors are throwing their weight behind a plan to reform the mining industry so it can safely meet the growing demand for minerals and metals needed for the green transition. Investors overseeing a combined $11 trillion, including California State Teachers Retirement System and Legal and General Investment Management, are among the first to back the Global Investor Commission on Mining 2030, according to a statement on Wednesday. The investor group, which was convened this year with the help of the United Nations, said its goal is to, quote, define a vision for a socially and environmentally responsible mining sector, end quote, and introduce a set of global standards for the industry covering issues from child labor to biodiversity loss. Expanding wind, solar, and electric vehicle production will require considerably more minerals and metals than combustion-powered technology, and that's forcing ESG investors to take a fresh and more critical look at the mining industry, which has been linked to a long list of environmental and social harms. And we have a quote from George 
Chevalier, a portfolio manager at 91, which also backs the commission. Quote, mining has never been an easy industry. However, if the energy transition is going to be successful, a significant increase in the supply of sustainably mined minerals is required. Only by engaging with the mining industry on multiple levels will we ensure that these minerals can be accessed whilst taking into account the many different stakeholders. Interesting. And we have another quote from Adam Matthews, chair of the commission and chief responsible investment officer of the Church of England Pensions Board, quote, the Mining 2030 Commission presents a unique opportunity to step back and consider how investors value, steward, and invest for the long term in a sector whose time horizons are multi-decadal and often at odds with short-term investment pressure. You know what this tells me? I mean, we can look at the manifest content, the surface content of this story, and say, okay, the pension funds want to create a standard for miners so that they can feel good about their investments on ESG grounds. That's what I take as my interpretation of the surface content. What is the latent content here? I would say these guys are looking at the mining sector to put a bunch of money in and they want to put money in, but they don't feel comfortable about it right now. And in order for them to feel comfortable, they need to make this document or these sets of rules where they can start to put money in. There's my bullish interpretation of what's going on here. $11 trillion is looking for a way into the mining sector. Just my bullish interpretation here. And just another story kind of on the similar lines here. BNP Paribas cracks down on mining clients exposed to coal. And this is Bloomberg via mining.com. BNP Paribas is imposing new financing restrictions as part of an updated policy on how to treat clients in the mining industry, the EU's biggest bank will no longer provide financing to projects dedicated to the extraction of metallurgical coal, according to an emailed statement late on Wednesday. And here's the quote from the bank. Quote, this new commitment is part of BNP Paribas' effort to align its credit portfolio in the steel sector with its net zero commitment. End quote. So I tell you, if they can figure out a way to invest in the mining sector, all this money, if they have some sort of standards that they put together, again, that makes them feel comfortable. Uh, there could be just a deluge of money coming in here. So interesting story there. And of course, another headline from Bloomberg via mining.com. Lithium price route deepens with battery metal now down 75% this year. And just a paragraph here, China's prices of lithium carbonate, a semi-processed form of the metal, fell 2.3% on Thursday alone and are down 20% so far this month. Now, again, remember the playbook and who knows if this is what's happening, but don't forget how China was able to take over the rare earth industry, which was flood the market, putting everybody else out of business and then keep that market probably through some sort of government subsidy, keep it going, let it lose money, put everybody out of business, and then own that entire industry as they largely do now in many critical metals. Spodumene, the lithium-bearing rock mined in Australia, has more than halved in 2023. A supply glut has pushed down prices in 2023 after they surged in the previous couple of years. The global lithium market won't return to deficit until 2028 according to forecasts from industry consultancy Benchmark Mineral Intelligence. Elevated interest rates are also leading to uncertainty over global EV demand, with some automakers rethinking their strategies. 
You know, again, who can afford these cars anymore, which seem to double and triple in price since COVID? The prices I was seeing on cars, I would imagine, you know, in the last couple of years, I would imagine the auto industry is going to be really having to rethink their strategies on how to sell these things. And just one more quote here from Alan Ray Restoro, analyst at Bloomberg NEF, quote, with lithium supply growing more next year, we're likely going to see prices falling further. On the demand side, some regional differences on EV sales have been dragging sentiment down around the industry, end quote. So just a few headlines here. Aluminum price climbs as Goldman sees larger supply deficit. And here's another one. Iron ore price eyes fifth weekly gain despite China intervention. Reuters via mining.com. So interesting, these industrial metals are starting to get a little spring in their step. And here's another one. China's copper premium spikes on demand from renewables industry, Bloomberg News, via mining.com. And here's the first line. China's copper market is tightening with, with premiums over exchange prices spiking as better than expected demand from electric vehicles, solar panels, and the power industry draws down inventories. And we have to remember what Robert Friedland was saying, that inventories are dwindling down because the price to keep these metals in stock and the storage is actually getting more expensive with interest rates higher. So this is part of the reason, as far as I understood Robert Friedland's talk at the Canadian Mining Symposium in London, this is part of the reason why commodity and metal prices are falling. Because the cost to store them is higher with higher interest rates, a fascinating hypothesis. And a couple of more headlines here I want to touch on this. First, Quantum suspends copper production in Panama amid blockade. So this is November 23rd, Bloomberg News. And they have suspended production in Panama as a blockade of boats restricts key supplies to one of the world's biggest and newest copper mines. Quote, Cobre Panama is no longer operating at commercial levels of production, end quote. The Canadian company said in a text message confirming union comments earlier Thursday. So now there is a boat blockade and you see a picture with what look like thousands and thousands of people. And final story here, Panama copper miners attacked by protesters, union boss says. So this is also Bloomberg News and this is November 26th. So very recently, protesters attacked workers leaving the Cobre Panama mine early Sunday in an incident that left about eight people injured, a union leader said. A group of protesters in a pickup truck threw stones at buses carrying staff from the first quantum-operated mine, Michael Camacho, a leader of the Ultramipa Union, said by telephone. After one bus was forced to stop, the passengers fled as protesters detained the driver, Camacho said. He said he was unaware of the extent of the injuries suffered by workers. So it's getting pretty intense over there in Panama regarding First Quantum's Cobre Panama mine. Those are your news stories. Now, let's take a look at metal prices. And turning to metal prices, just taking a quick look at the bond market. For context, the U.S. 10-year Treasury bond is yielding 4.396%, let's call it 4.4%. That is down 0.02% on the week. The UK 10-year gilt is yielding 4.214%, so 
so 0.1% higher than last week. And the Italy 10-year bond is down 0.2% at 4.33%. So interesting developments there. U.S. and Italy continue to fall, Italy the most, while U.K. inches up, but from pretty low levels at 4.1, moving to 4.2. Now that we know the cost of money, let's look at the precious metals here. Gold is trading at $2,019.60 per ounce. That is $13 higher than last week. Silver is trading at $24.70 per ounce. That is $0.71 cents higher than last week. Platinum is trading at $918.11 per ounce. That is a dollar lower than last week. And palladium is trading at $1,053.17 per ounce. And that is also lower. It is $18 lower than last week. So gold and silver higher, platinum and palladium lower. Interesting development on the precious metals. And turning to our industrial metals, copper is down $0.04 cents at $3.76 per pound. Iron ore is higher at $130.42 per metric ton. Aluminum is a penny lower at $1.01 per pound. Lead is $0.05 cents lower at $0.99 cents per pound. Nickel continues to fall at $7.22 per pound. That is $0.34 cents lower than last week. Tin also falling at $10.83 per pound. That is $0.44 cents lower than last week. Cobalt is unchanged at $15.16 per pound. Lithium continues to fall at $17.69 per kilogram. That is $2 lower than last week. And uranium shoots higher at $80.25 per pound. That is $6.25 higher than last week, and zinc is two cents lower at a dollar and fifteen cents per pound. Zooming out, precious metals definitely pulling away from the rest of the metals, with the great exception being uranium, which is looking maybe the strongest of them all. And lithium, of course, is a major standout, being at $17.69. I mean, I started tracking lithium about six months ago and we were at $51.54 per kilogram to show you the extent of the fall. It is now about a third of that price. So remarkable there. And I think nickel has to be seen as remarkable down at $7.22 per pound. So it kind of looks like opportunity knocks if you are a bull on a coming metals bull market. Not financial advice, of course, Uranium, gold, and silver being the big standouts here, and those are your metal prices. Coming up, I'm very pleased to welcome Stephen Stewart back to the show. He is chair of the Ore Group and chair and founder of the Young Mining Professionals Scholarship Fund. He tells us all the ways for students and companies to really link up with the Young Mining Professionals, especially the Scholarship Fund in terms of recruiting but also Young Mining Professionals as a networking tool. As he said, it's one of the best decisions he's ever made to be a part of the Young Mining Professionals. So a really very interesting interview. And of course, we have the Peter Monk and Ira Thomas Awards nominations that are occurring right now until the end of the year. So you'll get information on that as well. So I hope you enjoy it and I will see you on the other side. 
Joining us today, I am very pleased to welcome back to the show, Stephen Stewart, chair of the OR Group and founder and chair of the Young Mining Professional Scholarship Fund. Stephen, welcome back. Thank you, Adrian. So great to be back here with you in the Northern Miner. Well, it's always a delight to have you, Stephen. You're kind of involved in a few different things. You have your pulse on the exploration industry in Canada, as well as larger things going on. So to begin, how are things going? I saw you in London. How has your fall been going from a business perspective? You know what? It's a sort of a tale of of two cities, if you will. I think the industry as a whole continues to suffer and, and suffer when I say nobody cares about our industry. No new money is coming in. You can put out really good results only to be sold off, which is a story we've seen many, many times throughout the year. So no big surprise, but it's just not a, a very pleasant place to be, particularly for shareholders. The other side of the coin, though, is that there's opportunity. Opportunity abounds when nobody cares, as long as you have the ability to be patient and to identify good value. And now's the time to buy good value at good prices. And that's what we were talking about when I saw you in London. We had just acquired the largest copper resource in Ontario for pennies on the dollars of what it costs to drill it out and negating the risk that it costs to discover and drill it out in the first place. So there's there's just so many opportunities like that. And that's how we've built the ore group over the past 10 years is, is playing the troughs. It's very hard to make you know new discoveries. Those odds are stacked against you. So it's now is the time to take advantage of tough markets as long as you have capital, as I said, and patience, because we just don't know when it's going to come. But I have you know the utmost conviction it's coming. And what is it? I mean, the market is going to come back for mining and metals. We just cannot live our lives without these fundamental building blocks called metals. Indeed. I have the same impression. It's not a matter of if, but when, you know, gold passing $2,000 an ounce there kind of feels like, again, the winds are starting to pick up a little bit in our sales over here in the resource industry. So pivoting over to what you're doing with young mining professionals. I mean, there's actually been a couple of news stories recently, which we hosted on the Northern Miner. So tell us about the Young Mining Professional Scholarship Funds. Uh, Tell us what's going on there. I mean, you've been doing it for a few years. What's the update? What is the news with the Young Mining Professional Scholarship Fund? So the news is twofold. One is we're just in the process of announcing this year's winners. We've raised $210,000 this year from corporate sponsors in the industry. And every single penny of, of that money goes directly to students studying earth sciences, be it geology or mining engineering in Canada. So that's significant. I believe it's over 45 scholarships this year. So to me, that's meaningful. We're starting to move the needle. I believe it's the sixth year that we've been going with this scholarship fund. Every single person involved with the scholarship fund, or even broadly speaking with YMP, we're all volunteers. And so we're all giving back. We're all trying to uh, really attract and retain the best and the brightest to this industry. It is so difficult to compete in this world with other industries. The miners are too often, and I think falsely painted as the bad guys. And hence that narrative falls down to people who are studying in university. And so we're not necessarily the first choice. So I think our efforts in YMP and the scholarship fund are really aimed at combating the misinformation, promoting the industry, and then providing the financial benefits, if you will, to study our craft and and come in and, and ultimately become the next Peter Monk, the next Ira Thomas, the next leader, the next generation of entrepreneurs that our industry just absolutely needs in order to survive. So that's what YMP is about. So So, yeah, we've got this scholarship initiative coming to fruition. And then, of course, we start with our fundraising campaign for the next year. We're always looking for corporate sponsors who, who, as I said, pay the bills. That money goes directly to students. 
And so next year we're looking to hit it out of the park, really, is what we want to do. We want to double this year's tally and just really accentuate how important young people are. One other point is how we're going to double this. I think we now add value to the mining companies because uh, before it was about giving back, which is important, supporting the industry, supporting young people, which is important. But now we've actually evolved into delivering true, tangible value to these mining companies because what's happened is they're all hiring these scholarship winners. And so when the best and the brightest apply, we vet them and we ultimately deliver hundreds of CVs or resumes to our sponsors uh, of people who applied to their specific scholarships. Companies like Barrick, Mark, in fact, Mark Bristow called up two scholarship winners personally and offered them jobs. Appian hired somebody right out of our scholarship program who won their scholarship. Uh, Windsor Salt the same this year. So, you know, and there's many more, many more instances of that. So what we've become is is really recruiting and human resources assets for companies who are looking for uh, talent, which is so hard to find, particularly in mining. So I think we offer a lot of value and, and we're promoting the industry. So it's good news all around for the scholarships. Indeed. I mean, it's opportunity for both the students to get their name out there. It's kind of a first TV to a certain degree, even while you're still in school, just to get your name out there. And then for the companies, I mean, recruiting is not cheap, you know, from what I understand, like it's a pretty expensive business. So who are the biggest sponsors if you're, you know, kind of able to talk about that? Like, because it sounds like a great deal for them, frankly. Well, it is. I'll say just a quick aside. I I personally am, am one of the larger sponsors and the org group and its companies are, are some of the, the largest sponsors. And and I would say we benefit directly. I personally have a benefit. I, I'd say about half the people who work from org group I met through Young Mining Professionals, not necessarily through the scholarship mm. program, but through Young Mining Professionals just in general through its events. So, I mean, that speaks to the ability of the pool of people and the networking capabilities. But Barrick has always been our, our founding sponsor, if you will, and have been massive supporters and, you know, everywhere down to smaller juniors like O3. And, and Jose, who is, was the Peter Monk Award winner a number of years ago, has been a big supporter. Agnico Eagle. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. We have the you know blue chip companies. We have smaller juniors like the Ore Group supported, but we aim to deliver value to all of those again by just promoting the business or the industry, which isn't itself tangible. It's noble, but not tangible. But now we actually offer tangible value by um, introducing these young people. And then the young people love it too. So as I said, it wasn't born with that intent, but that's how it's evolved. And you know, that's how good things happen sometimes. Interesting. And from the student perspective, I mean, how do you how do you spread the information about young mining professionals to students? Like I would almost be as so I guess pedestrian is to say, like, do you put a poster up on like the, you know, when I went to university, they had bulletin boards. And then that was almost the way you found out about it. Like, how do you spread the word on young mining professionals? Yeah, well, I suppose the world's largest bulletin board now is the Internet. And so, uh, you know, over time, we have uh, grown our presence. It didn't happen overnight. Uh, we are in its uh, sixth year. I guess next year will be our seventh iteration. We certainly reach out to the universities directly to get them to put us on their bulletin boards, so to speak. But it's really we have no official relationships with the universities. We we have by design chosen to go directly to the students. And we do have chapters on six continents. And so all the chapters get behind us, even though it's run out of Toronto and this is a Toronto based initiative. The other chapters support us and see value. And and it's just a matter of what word spreads. It is a small industry, that's for sure. And I guess just over years, our efforts are compounding. And and as I said, I think we had thirty five hundred scholarship applications, which is, you know, amazing 
but also overwhelming from a management and a vetting standpoint. So there's there's lots of resources available. But Tony and myself, who are the leads of the, the scholarship fund, and Tony's done a wonderful job of managing the the huge team we have to, to mark all of these. I think we had uh, 40 people contribute to the scholarship markings this year. It's, it's a task and we take it quite seriously because, you know, it's a fiduciary responsibility that, that these sponsors give to us. And and we want to make sure that the right people win it and we deliver good quality individuals and applications uh, to these students. But, you know, to answer your question, it's word of mouth is using Twitter, is using LinkedIn, it's using our events. When we go to our events, we always talk about our scholarships, encourage the people there uh, to apply if they are students or certainly spread the word. But, you know, anyway, anyhow, we can, we spread the word. And certainly the Northern Miner. Hey, you know, look, you guys have been there since day one with this group, really. And uh, we partner with you. You guys give us amazing coverage. And you know, I don't think the scholarship fund or the YMP group would be quite the same without the support of the Northern Miner. Well, we appreciate that uh, speaking on at least my behalf here. So just once more, just then for the students, because we actually have quite a few students that listen to the show. What are you looking for then? Like, what should they be doing? What should they be trying to achieve in their application? Well, go to ympscholarships.com first and foremost. I don't think we have any scholarships open right now, but what I will say, obviously that'll come shortly, but every single company designs their own scholarship to suit their needs. For example, Agnico Eagle, they've designed it so that it's north of 60, the 60th parallel. So that typically caters towards those who are in the communities where their Nunavut operations are. QC Copper, a company that I'm the founder of, does it for uh, people in the Chape Shabugamu district. So again, every company's got different wants and needs, and we work with each company to, as I said, design a scholarship that is right for them. And so really, we have probably 25 donors. And so there's really a, a broad mix of criteria and something that probably will apply to everybody. And then we also have the, the what we call the lottery, which is, is less, um, I guess, prescriptive and it's really it's not about quality. You do have to meet certain quality criteria, but really we just it's a, it's a pick of the draw. It's only 500 bucks, but it's a nice way to spread it around a little bit um, to, to sort of allow everybody to get a chance. But some of the larger scholarships are, you know, are worth fifteen thousand dollars. I mean, that's meaningful. So, again, go to ympscholarships.com. Uh, check out our past scholarships where we likely still have them posted. But every year we post new criteria. Grades are important, but also, uh, you know, creativity. A, a lot of them, we stress the aspects of creativity and winning the scholarships because entrepreneurship is about creativity. And and NYMP has always leaned towards uh, supporting entrepreneurs in our industry because I think, you know, that's the lifeblood of it. Okay. So then at the end of November, you guys are going to announce the 2023 scholarship winners. And then from there, in a sense, I guess what the students should do is they should just start going to YMP scholarships and start, you know, waiting for the new announcements to trickle in. And then as they see them start to pinpoint which ones make sense for them. Right. right. So, so the, so the winners from last year are just about to be announced. I mean, it's really an any day sort of thing. And then uh, shortly in the new year, we'll announce the new slate, the new scholarships that, that people will be eligible for for 2024. Okay, excellent. Uh, thank you for that. Now, as far as the Peter Monk and Ira Thomas Awards, nominations are being taken right now. Is, is that correct? That's right. So the Peter Monk and the Ira Thomas Awards, or uh, otherwise known as the YMP Awards, is an event that is hosted here in Toronto every year. 
And it's to celebrate the top uh, male and female entrepreneur in the industry. Obviously, very, very distinct, very uh, different category than the scholarships themselves. This celebrates, you know, people who have a great success and success comes in all different forms in this industry. Nominations are open now. What we do is we solicit nominations from the public. They give us their best ideas. Sometimes people nominate themselves. Sometimes they nominate them friends. But nonetheless, it's looking for people who have made a material impact for themselves, their shareholders, the communities with which they operate. And yeah, we get a lot of submissions and then we announce it. I believe it's in January we announce it and then we have a, an event and we we celebrate it. So again, it's just another way that YMP looks to celebrate and honor the industry and the, the people who work within it. And this is for people that are under 40 uh, for the nomination, right? And the Peter Monk, of course, is for the, the man and the Ira Thomas Award is for the woman under 40. That's correct. You got it. Okay, excellent. So just a final practical note, just on how a student goes about, how do they find out about the events? Again, is it just go to YMP scholarships or is there like a Facebook page? Like, what is the best way for them to just kind of get news on an event that's coming up? Often when I was a student, I would miss all sorts of stuff because I just didn't really know about it, right? Like, how, how do they find out? Yeah, no, that's a challenge we've always faced as a group, a particular group that's evolved into a global group. And so I would encourage everybody to go to youngminingprofessionals.com, which is different than ympscholarships.com. Of course, different website, different uh, agendas, if you will. But that's where you'll find at the sort of the global group, that's where you'll find uh, links to all the individual chapters. And so, you know, for those in Perth may not be interested in what goes on in Montreal and so on and so forth. So, and I believe each of the chapters has their own site where you can sign up and get uh, information on events. There's lots of events coming up, obviously for the holiday season. We have one here in Toronto. Everybody's gonna wear their ugliest sweater and we're gonna give prizes out and we'll have a, you know, a drink and a toast for that in the new year. And uh, yeah, sold out already though. But that, yeah, the events go really quickly, especially here in Toronto. It's a, it's a very well-followed chapter. Uh, obviously, deep talent pool here. But yeah, again, go go to the website and sign up for the email list. And every chapter does things a little bit differently, but they're all good people. There's multiple events a year. And I encourage every young person, young, old, to get out there and uh, and just sort of meet your colleagues. It's being involved with young mining professionals is the single best thing I've ever done for myself. Well, that party uh, with the ugly sweaters and the drinks sounds like a ton of fun from over here. And uh, I'm in Berlin and that sounds like fun. Uh, so, okay. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Actually, I'm coming next week, believe it or not. Now, while I got you here, Stephen, so fascinating and brilliant work that you've done with young mining professionals. Again, it sounds like a full time job, actually, you know uh, what you guys are doing there. While I got you here, though, like, I mean, how are things going? I asked you at the start, how are things going in the mining industry? I assume not much has changed. Like it's, it is what it is. You wish you had more help, but it continues forward. There's not much funding. Like, is there anything you'd add to that or qualify, you know, what I was just saying? No, I would say it's the status quo. I think, you know, again, as we spoke uh, a number of months ago, um, I think the narrative is shifting in terms of the governments are talking about how they absolutely need to support mining in the metals industry if they are to reach their so-called net zero goals. The ability to meet those goals is, is a much longer conversation, but long and short, I don't think they're realistic. But even if they are quasi-realistic, 
we just don't have the metals to supply the ultimate reduction or if not elimination of fossil fuels, which is, again, a very, very long term thing. But nonetheless, I think that we have seen uh, here in Canada, we've seen uh, the government support battery manufacturing facilities, many, many, many billions of dollars. What I think really needs to happen is they need to focus on the exploration. That's where it all starts and give us more support. I mean, Volkswagen doesn't need the support as much as our exploration industry. I think we get a lot more return over the long term and even the short term. If, you know, even a, even a fraction of that sort of support came to us. I'll reference Quebec. You know, I think Quebec is just a wonderful province and they've always understood the value of mining. They have mandated the Case Depot, Investment Quebec, CDEX, FTQ, the list goes on. Of pension funds, government operated pension funds who are mandated to uh, invest in the exploration industry, which creates taxes, jobs, royalties, and all sorts of externalities that mining can bring. They also have very clear permitting regime. So Quebec is just a wonderful place to look to. So I don't think Canada or the provinces really need to look too far. They just need to look to La Belle Province as an example of great leadership and how they can reform and improve their approach to mining rules, uh, regulation, and support. I would echo that sentiment, having moderated the Quebec panel at the Canadian Mining Symposium in London. I was very impressed. It was a very well-organized, well-put-together. Seems like they really are doing the right things. They're checking the boxes, basically, you know, encouraging exploration of all things, which is incredibly underfunded industry, as we've discussed. Now, I assume you saw that announcement. I think if memory serves, something like $1.6 billion of the Critical Metals Fund was released. You're with the ore group and several companies. Like, are you applying for any of that money? I mean, there's a Northern Miner article, you know, with a link to um, basically the application form. No, well, look, again, that's for the big boys. I guess, you know, that sort of dovetails with my comment early on Volkswagen, which I'm not against, you know, I mean, but I think we're not getting enough um, attention. And so my somewhat limited understanding of that multi-billion dollar commitment is for large companies that are going to be built. So if you're building a mine, apply, right? I mean, the ore group um, is more on the exploration and development side. And so it's really not for us. I would love to see some sort of support. We're not asking for handouts. In fact, I think handouts, free money is a terrible idea over the long haul. Sure, it's nice to get it, and, you know, but I think on the aggregate, that doesn't work. But what we need is incentives. What we really need is a very clear permitting regime that allows us to know exactly what the rules of the games are and, and that they don't change midstream. You know, the permitting regime uh, is there for good reason, but it's just evolved into a big, you know, tangled mess of nobody knows you know, what it is. And so that becomes unattractive. I just saw an article about Peter Maroney uh, this morning, uh, I think it was in the Globe and Mail, and how he's started a new company called Allied Gold, and he's doing so in West Africa. And, and his whole mantra or the pitch is, well, you know, I don't want to do it in and call it tier one jurisdictions like Canada because the, the permitting regime is just unclear and you can't get things to production within a, a reasonable time frame. Hence, your returns are blown out of the water. So they're going to emerging districts to deploy this capital. And I think to the detriment of Canada and and the wealth of, of resources that we have in situ in, in this country and and more importantly, the wealth of resources that we have until in terms of intellectual capital that we've developed over generations here that is just sitting here waiting to be deployed and utilized and ultimately to create more wealth for those around us. The wealth that mining and new mine can create uh, goes well beyond 
you know, the mine's actual NPV. You must look at the externalities, the car dealerships, the insurance companies, you know, the schools, the hospitals that are built around these communities. All you need to do is drive from Timmins to Valdor and you'll see, you know, the wealth creation and the communities that mining builds. And now certainly uh, mining operates very responsibly. Uh, they care very much about the environment and the communities. Uh, I would say the mining industry does ESG better than any other industry. We just have the worst reputation. And I think that's just completely unfair and needs to be modernized. And everybody needs to look at the mining industry with a fresh set of eyes. We're the good guys. We allow everybody to um, eat, sleep warm um, with a roof over their head. Well, I've kind of always said, at least in the last couple of years, that the mining industry should really take a page out of the Cameco playbook that ultimately we're not you know, creating radioactive waste, we're basically helping save the, the world from uh, carbon you know, emissions. And ultimately, it seems to me that the mining industry has a really a similar message that it could deliver. Just a final question here. I'm always about the nuts and bolts and the day to day with permitting, for example, like just to put some flesh on the bone here. Are you in a position, say, with these companies where that you're a part of and help run uh, where you send off an application to get a permit, and then is it just a black hole? Like, is there no sense that in, in three months we will have delivered this response? Do you have anything like that, or is it simply like a black hole, and then you just get the answer when you get the answer? It certainly can be. I wouldn't say every instance is like that, but I would say more and more it is become like that. I would say, you know, the, the precipice for many things was probably the COVID era, where we did submit permits and then because of shutdowns and, and obviously communications with local communities and everybody was giving everybody a lot of leeway. You know, there there are statutory timeframes typically associated with basic permits. Some permits of building mines can be a little more complicated, but just for like a simple drill program, you know, it can be like a 45 day response time. It wouldn't be atypical during COVID that just got extended indefinitely. And I found that since then and now COVID is, you know, thankfully long over, the permitting regime has not snapped back. So there's still too much, you know, extension and, and there's really no clarity on as to why. So there are rules, but they're not always adhered to. And I think the powers that be should pay closer attention to that. It kind of seems like a simple way of kind of rectifying, which is probably the most common concern from explorers that I hear in Canada is clarity and just simplification on the whole permitting regime. All to say, Stephen Stewart, thank you for joining us today. Chair of the OR Group and founder and chair of the YMP Scholarship Fund. Hope you have a wonderful holiday. It's great to see you again online. It was great to see you in London, and I just hope you have a wonderful and safe holiday season. Thank you so much, Adrian. You as well. Great talking to you, and uh, thanks to all the listeners. And thank you once again to Stephen Stewart for bringing us up to date on what is happening with young mining professionals, both the scholarship fund and the main organization. Again, the websites are youngminingprofessionals.com and ympscholarships.com. Thank you, dear listener, for joining us again on the program. We're going to have a great interview with Cam Curry next week on the gold stocks and what his take is on the Caliber Marathon deal. Should be a good one. I hope you're enjoying the beginning of this holiday season. If you want to help out the podcast, please leave us a review in the Apple Podcast directory. Share it with your friends. And until next week, take care.